I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, from Lake Tahoe to Lake Como, it's an interview with famed boat photographer and photojournalist Stephen Lapkin. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who's traveled the world, raced international 14s and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty great, Scott. So what do we have planned for today's episode? Well, today we're, we're having a, uh, an interview with a very fascinating man. Uh, photographer uh, Steve Lapkin. Steve is a California guy that has spent a great deal of time and had spent summers and growing up around Lake Tahoe and has captured some of the most amazing images of uh, wooden powerboats that uh, posterity stake and just pure beauty uh, some of the best photography I've ever seen. He's probably considered one of the best photographers in uh, the boat world. Uh, he shoots America's Cup. He shoots uh, other classic boats. And he captures uh, action and the color uh, with a very, very unique style. So uh, Steve's an interesting man. And I was very, very honored to have uh, interviewed him. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Cup of coffee. It was nice talking to you yesterday, by the way. I, I enjoyed that. I did read that you were in the Navy, right? And you, you told me a little bit that you were on ships in the Navy yesterday. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. When did you go into the... What, uh, were you an officer? Were you uh, a lieutenant? Yes, I was an officer for three years, and uh, I went through uh, ROTC programs and uh, somehow matriculated from University of Southern California in 1970, got my commission the same time, and was assigned to a ship at Long Beach, but never got to that ship, <laughs> um, meaning uh, they sent us off to schools before we got to our first assignments. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm in San Diego going through a bunch of schools. And one morning the instructor come in, comes in and says, hey guys, uh, Nixon's doing a, uh, a cutback. So we're right. going to get rid of a bunch of ships and these kinds of things. So, hey, Steve, your ship is being decommissioned. You're never going to see it. So they assigned me to a ship that was relatively new and uh, I reported to it. At first time I reported to it, it was in Vietnam. So the ordeal, the ordeal of being flown out, etc., wound up in Vietnam for three days just trying to get to the ship. Mm -hmm. So by hook or by crook, by helicopter, by carrier landing, by otherwise, I got to my ship in '70 and uh, made three deployments over a three-year period. So yeah, one ship, a rather uh, successful ship. Uh, certain personalities were shipmates, didn't know it at the time, they became personalities. Uh, people in our business, uh, 
your friend Bob Woodward of the Washington Post oh. was, was the communications officer on the ship at the time. So, yes. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting, a uh, little tidbit of, of news. Yeah. Oh. Um, I know when I first saw your name, I, 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 I read it in uh, Lampkin, and I said to myself, oh, wait, 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 wait. And then I said, no, 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 that's not Jim Lampley. Jim Lampley, you know, the broadcaster who now does mostly fights and things like that. Um, he was in like a lot of my classes at Carolina. Uh, so and he was he was the go get up and go type to, you know, go to football games, interview people. I mean, he was literally interviewing people in the class. I think at one point he was he was very gun ho to be a uh, broadcaster. First of all, the 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 photography that you do is a very specialized kind of photography in terms of, I suppose, subject, right? I think yesterday we mentioned that uh, there's only about four or five other photographers that specialize in doing um, uh, boats. True, Scott. Uh, but let's, I don't want to suggest to anybody that it's that finite in that anybody can pick up any device and, oh, sure. and record. Mm -hmm. All right. But, uh, yes, it's the wooden boat, what we call vintage wooden boats, veteran wooden boats, dating back, uh, for practical purposes, over 120 years. Right. Uh, th that, that genre, that niche, that element on the face of the earth is rather uh, uh, exclusive. It's uh, rather diverse. Uh, but I grew up at Lake Tahoe. And my initial exposure to Lake Tahoe was boating. And I subsequently learned, and obviously now today have uh, knowledge that the one of the bastions, one of the um, uh, uh, center uh, stages, one of the um, locations for the collections that exist today is Lake Tahoe. Hmm. And so there are others, but one would think or one would say or people report or in fact, thousands of wooden boats still exist at Lake Tahoe specifically, as opposed, wow. as opposed to some other locations such as Lake George, New York, Lake Minnetonka, Minnesota, mm -hmm. um, or across the pond, Italy, obviously, because of Carlo Riva, right. uh, Sweden. So, yes, um, it is very finite, very specialized, uh, attracts only a, a certain audience, although that grows and the hobby has its ups and downs. But these boats that are uh, in my portfolio and that of others that do what I do, they're 100, 100 years old in some cases. They're outliving right. us. Right, right. I know. I guess the water and um, one problem I've always had looking at boats is having spent a great deal of time in warm water like the Caribbean water, where it's eighty-six degrees and stuff. Uh, wooden boats don't uh, have much of a um, a chance against worms that get into the wood, and especially when they're in that. But I would imagine Lake Tahoe is fairly cold, so that wouldn't be a problem at all. This the boating season traditionally at Lake Tahoe is give or take Easter or Memorial Day to Labor Day 
and then depending upon the first snows. Now, right. Okay. Snow at Tahoe, any time of the year. Right. Last, last week, for example, and it may snow the Fourth of July. But to your, po your point, the microclimb is um, truly a godsend for a wooden boat. Mm -hmm. It's it's fresh water. Uh, it's some of the freshest water. Pardon me, of a lake anywhere. Two, the boating season and the uh, the boat in the water scenario is comparatively short. Right. Three, there is no, there's relatively little humidity at that elevation. Lake Tahoe's at 6,200 feet. Right. So you put all those things together, and yes. Ideal location. It is, like, yes, exactly, totally. So when you, when you do this, just more of a technical question, what sort of equipment do you use, or do you have any favorite of um, like cameras or lenses? Um, I know there's that picture of you seeing on the back of the boat with that super telephoto going. Um, do you prefer going completely digital, or do you use uh, still use film? Or because I know that that with your experience, I'm sure you've transitioned from actually using film to 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 using digital. You're correct, Scott. Uh, I I go back far enough that 35 millimeter was in vogue at the time. So yes, ultimately digital uh, becomes available. Ultimately we become a, a, a fan of digital. Uh, ultimately today it's totally digital in my case. Mm -hmm. um, but the first camera I picked up was a Canon, just happened to be a Canon body I'm 40 years ago. Um, things have changed since uh, there wasn't uh, there wasn't digital yet. So now you have processing after the fact to produce a slide to produce otherwise anything. You know what I'm saying in that regard. But right. But I transitioned and I stuck with with uh, Canon. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the competitors, Nikon, Fuji, Sony. But I stuck with. But I do dabble. I'll go out and I'll. I'll loan this body or I'll loan this lens or if I'm going to travel and I want something lightweight, I'll keep that in mind in terms of what I carry. You've seen probably some pictures of me where I'm in a helicopter. Right. And going back that far, we didn't have great stabilization. So there were gyro devices that you could attach to the camera itself to, to uh, mobilize uh, your, your your positioning and uh, attempt to uh, compensate for any kind of of um, chatter. Right. Well, we all know now that 99% of the digital bodies and the digital lenses are uh, have a gyro capability in them, a stabilizing capability in them. Right. Mm -hmm. So so it's as simple as a body and a lens wherever I go, or a body or or multiple bodies and multiple lenses depending upon the ultimate application. Right, right. So for your, you're looking forward to doing the America's Cups? That would be a dream next year, all things being equal, yes. <laughs> How does one, I mean, I'm always amazed by the strategy it takes to get to get out there and get a good photo. I've told you before that I used to be the mothership and take uh, photographers out and we would we would race around i mean i'd have full sail up and uh the engine 
running at top RPM to try to keep up with some of these boats and, and try to find the right angles and stuff like that. Probably my boat wasn't the best photography boat, but it was pretty stable because it was a heavier boat and it had a big deck so people could get comfortable and uh, have a secure physical location before shooting. But uh, could you explain a little bit how you kind of go at photographing because you've got some fantastic photographs and you've got some wonderful drone things but i wanted to do that a little bit later to talk afterwards i'm not a drone guy i don't own a drone i don't use it <laughs> i'm anti-drone oh. i'm no drones here oh wow nothing in my portfolio sir and for the audience is from a drone oh it's, so it's all helicopter it's all helicopter or yes in this case totally helicopter Oh, cool. Um, and, uh, and I'd rather be in a helicopter than on the water just because of those aspects of those, those uh, uh, scenario, those, those uh, um, uh, viewing options. Uh -huh. But there is no drone work in what I do. But to your point, it's like if you've got a good chauffeur, like driving Miss Daisy, if you've got the best possible chauffeur behind the wheel of your photo platform, who may also have a sense of where to be and when to be at the right time, then the, the, the imagery will, will come. As long as you've got a stable platform, as long as you've got solid equipment, uh, as long as you keep your mind forward, as long as you've got no distractions, no cell phones on, nothing of a, any man-made kind otherwise that keeps you from what's either right in front of you or right behind you, right above you or right below you. Mm -hmm. So we go to it, you speak of the Caribbean. A lot of my work um, is sail. A lot of my work is Key West. For years, every January, a major regatta, a week long, attracting 150, 200 boats from all, all around the world, the best sailors, etc., the best recreational sailors, we're on the water five days. We try to fly at least one day if there are conditions that favor that, so you get the aerial perspectives. Mm -hmm. After X number of times, okay, the first time you do anything, it might be awkward, but after that, you've, you've, you knew how to do it or you did it once this way. Okay, let's keep doing it this way. Okay, here's the course they're gonna sail. We know that. Let's be sure that we're in this place at this time for this right. round, this start, this finish, etc. It's it's not complicated. It's just mm -hmm. in the right place, quote at the right time. Right, right. Yeah, I remember. I remember having a, a photographer ask me like, "We want to see them open up their uh, spinnakers." And, you know, the whole process of opening up their spinnakers and they wanted to get a little elevation. Yeah. So they asked me if they could actually climb up the mast. This is a unbelievably bad idea, but uh, they climbed up and stood on the first uh, set of spreaders as we were standing out there. And I was so afraid that they were going to come off of that mast with just a little bit of wave. And. At the end of it, it was an Italian girl that was actually doing it, and she got tons of photographs from that. And people, you know, afterwards I looked at some of them, and that that perspective was just fantastic. So, 
uh, it's kind of interesting, very interesting. Yeah, as we're moving along, um, tell me how you got the camera in your hands to start with, because it's, I think it was, a, it's an interesting thing how you began to see the world through the lens. How I physically hold it, or no, what? no, no. How did you begin? Like in the beginning, oh. you know, when you're when you're a kid and you say, "Oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to take my Kodak out," or you know, whatever the case may be. How did the connection between the camera and you and you learning to have a sort of uh, uh, vision of what's going on come to you? Well, Scott, I never owned a, can, a, 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 a Kodak Brownie that I can recall. <laughs> I, I, I use that as an as a, as I an know, but, but I do re, I do recall when Polaroid came out, etc. And uh, in my upbringing, uh, my mother was an an artist. She studied art in college. She worked for Disney as a colorist. So I was I was familiar with or was exposed to traditional canvas easel artwork at home from the day whatever to the day mother put the brush down um and in her family also people that were working in other aspects of a film and uh television and radio one of her sisters and then her oldest brother was a photographer during the second world war in the air force mm -hmm. so i i had that um uh, exposure and then finally, once my family uh, uh, took residence at Lake Tahoe and here are all the wooden boats, probably somebody else walked by and had a camera and was doing just that, photographing. And um, so I dabbled, but um, I really didn't um, think that it would be something that would become a career or mm -hmm. long a period of time. And uh, also a, a fellow who, um, was uh, particularly adept with cameras. Uh, I met through an activity known as the Concord Elegance Wooden Boat Show at Lake Tahoe every summer. Mm -hmm. And we'd literally walk the docks with camera in hand and a strap with big lenses as well. And we became friends. And uh, we're still friends to this day. Uh, <laughs> Not, he's not as active in, in the photographic world, but um, again, he he inspired me. He inspired me as well. I can recall when my had my uh, time aboard ship, and you're at sea, and uh, you're in company with other ships. Uh, you're in company with other ships of other countries. I had a camera then, and there was nothing wrong at that time with getting out on deck and standing there and. Uh, memorializing the activity wherever we were, whether it was in mm -hmm. the Olympics or off the coast of Japan or otherwise. And right. certain countries with, with other ships that had bears on the transom of their ships. <laughs> I won't bear. 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 <laughs> yeah, I won't name the country. But still, but still. So I had these. I had these kinds of exposures. I had these kinds of um, friends, colleagues, etc. So I just kept going with what I never thought would lead to what I'm doing today. Never in a million years. And then the the other people that are in the sailing world on a on a, uh, a photo agenda, uh, other photographers that I would meet as I would travel, or right. if I had a photo boat and I would share with, that gave me more impetus 
that taught me. They were my instructors. They still can be. They're dear friends. But um, it's an evolution. Everything, every moment of our day now is something new, something different, something unexpected. Not that I carry a camera with me morning, noon, and night, but Lord knows what will happen next. Lord knows where any of us will be next. I'm a visualist. Therefore, I might not sense that something is relatively visually important, but it doesn't stop me from taking a click. Right, right. What What is, I, I could probably guess this, is uh, your favorite objects to to shoot would be the wooden boats, obviously. But outside of the the classic uh, wooden boats, and, and quite honestly, I remember seeing my first, I think it was a Riva, and I'm not quite sure, but I saw it at Newport when I was maybe 17. And I just kind of stood there and just, I was gawking. And the, the guy who owned the boat came up to me and he says, you like this? And I, I go, oh man, it is gorgeous. This is, be-. and I sort of stumbled being 17. You don't really know older man. Uh, what do I say? This, that, another thing. And he says, great work hard. Maybe you could have one. And he hopped in the boat and drove away. <laughs> so that, that was my first experience with the Riva. I mean, I, I actually was looking at your um, landscapes they're very beautiful and very captivating. Are you doing any of that kind of work? Or are you sort of s- still doing that kind of work? What's, what's your projects like these days? Uh, well, we all know that projects are limiting only in that if they're not in your backyard. Um, yeah, well, you know, yeah, of but, course. But, but it doesn't mean that I wouldn't travel again. And I'm not, I'm not uh, opposed to traveling. But I did have um, an opportunity to... Uh, traveled to uh, Portugal and Spain uh, in 2019. And again, the cameras that I carried were lightweight. In fact, mirrorless, talking about the evolution of. Mm -hmm. It's digital, but now it's not a a mirrored digital apparatus. It's a mirrorless digital apparatus. Right. Um, So I explored every capability of that body on the trip. And most of what I was interested in was the architecture and the, the proximity to the sea and uh, uh, street art uh, and street artists. So that, that, again, it's in my portfolio now, but did I ever think that I'd get out of boating and get into, pardon me, <clears throat> landscape? No, but yes, that now is become very curious to me. Uh, even at a quick photo shoot to Lake Tahoe uh, 10 days ago, where it wasn't quite boating weather the days that we were there. In fact, it snowed one day in early June. <laughs> now now you have the Ansel Adams uh, uh, arena with nothing but billowy white and blue and the various colors of the water of Lake Tahoe. Not many boats, but, but otherwise, that's intriguing. Um, I had the pleasure to visit Whitefish, Montana in 2019, where they talk hmm. about they talk about big sky. Yes. Yes. It is big sky country. Okay. That's in my portfolio. So the heck with the boats, the heck with the people, the heck heck with the architecture. 
I want the big sky. And I got the big sky. Right. And then lastly, um, you know, a wooden boat isn't just uh, an anomaly to uh, Lake Tahoe or to, for those that are listening, such places as Lake Minnetonka, Minnesota, Lake George, New York, Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, Muskoka Lakes in, up, up in Canada, north of Toronto, but elsewhere. The, 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 the hobby and the, the, the various designers, manufacturers, etc. they're right. worldwide. They're worldwide. Right. And the, the boats have been taken worldwide. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, not to bore anybody, I met a fellow at Lake Tahoe who curiously bought one of my father's runabouts. Wow. But, yeah. After my father passed, I didn't realize that the, we had sold the boat. I didn't realize that the boat was purchased by a fellow from Wellington, New Zealand, a wooden boat fanatic. Oh. He put the boat in the container. The container made it to New Zealand. And that was in 2008. And we became friends because he visited Lake Tahoe. We were introduced by a, 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 another that, that thought, I'm going to marry these two guys. I'm going to marry Steve and Philip to this boat <laughs> that was part of the Lapkin family and is now, of all places, New Zealand. Wow. So Philip and I became good friends, the owner now. And finally, and we've stayed together, friends together. He visited me in Hawaii. Uh, finally, he said to me last fall, 2019, he says, why don't you come to New Zealand and drive your father's boat in New Zealand? So put together the trip. Unfortunately, we, with what we're going through these days, I was able to, to fly there and fly back uh, safely, of course. And, mm-hmm. and yet I had no idea visually the countryside, the boating world in New Zealand, not just because it's a sailing dominant populace and they, oh, yeah. hold, and they hold presently the America's Cup, which in theory will be defended in theory next year. Mm-hmm. But their lakes are pristine. There are no evidences of mankind structurally on their lakes where we were. It's just the boat, the driver, and the backdrop of the countryside. Wow. So we, I got to spend five days there um, and on American boats that were shipped there. That's the intrigue for me. It's these outposts that, or these so-called secret places that don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. We're not going to show anybody or tell anybody because we don't want anybody otherwise other than us. Right. There. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Oh. It's like you always see that famous picture. I don't know who took the picture, but it's a famous picture of uh, Riva on Lake Como. And I've been around Lake Como a lot and have rarely seen any wooden power boats on Lake Como. Um, they're there, but they're mostly in garages. And, and they, they only come out every once in a while. <laughs> uh, you, you're, you are leading uh, to something that e- is equally important, equally shareable, and uh, may also be equally appreciated by the audience. And that is, yes, the Italian designer Carlo Riva passed away several years ago, unfortunately. In my travels, I got to sit at his desk in his office countless times. And 
uh, at first, Carlo um, is always rather reticent in the beginning of a meeting. Uh, here, you and I are sitting, and we're comparatively open with one another right away. Mm -hmm. Right. If Carlo doesn't know who you are or understand you or otherwise, he'll be he'll, he'll sit back, and if he has the vibe, he'll engage, which he did, thankfully. But Carlo, of the major wooden boat manufacturers, there were, there was Chris Smith, Chris Craft. Mm -hmm. There was John Hacker, Hacker Craft. There was Horace Dodge, um, just to name three. And then there was Carlo Riva. Each of these manufacturers went in their own direction for whatever reason to produce their craft that are still right. with us today. Mm -hmm. Carlo was the artist. His contribution to the hobby, uh, to history, was his artist approach. Art, art approach to the craft. Right. The lines of Arriva, like you're at a, as a 17 year old, you're going, oh my God, what is this? This is a piece of art. I I love I love the idea, and and this is with all boats um, that I have. There are certain boats that hit me that. I don't have to I don't have to know anything about art. I know actually quite a bit about art, but you don't have to know anything for the boat to hit you in its design, um, is its presence, the way it sits in the water, um, the way it moves, just the 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 weight and breadth and and clarity that it has as a conceptual idea formed out of elements like wood and steel and stainless steel and whatever it's it's really and the detail of Areva I mean down to the cushions that you sit in is just everything is perfect well fortunately I mean, <laughs> yes, yes so but to your point but then let's talk about Lake Como for a moment but to your point when Carlo really launched himself, really became uh, a, uh, an attraction to a buying public in Southern Europe, in the Mediterranean, in the Italian lakes. His father had given him a boat building facility. His father passed on. Carlo perpetuated the entity and it still, it still exists today. They're not building wooden boats, but they're there for the, hair, the, the, the salvation of all the boats right. that are mm -hmm. there. But, but uh, uh, Carlo learned from the other masters. He, he might have had his eye as to what he wanted it to look like, but he didn't have the, the resources. So he came to the States and bought American product, whether it was instruments or engines or leather or whatever to make ultimately what you see in Arriva. It's, it's a, a combination of other elements, and he brought it all together in his way. Lake Como, you're right. You go to Lake Como, and relatively speaking, you, there you are looking at the water, or maybe you're on a water taxi on the water. Well, where are the wooden boats? Well, if you're George Clooney, it's, you might be out on the water, but yeah, they're tucked away in boathouses. Now the other lakes, Lake Garda, right. now you get out on the water, everybody's got a boat. And fortunately, 
there's still a preponderance of the wooden boats there, mm -hmm. not away per se. And then Lake Iseo, the smallest of the three major lakes in Italy, is where Riva's plant was. So yes, right. Riva's there. But in my portfolio, you won't see typically me taking a picture of a boat tied up to a dock. You won't see me taking a picture and maybe a few feet, legs or otherwise in the shot. <laughs> you won't see me taking a picture of a boat in a boathouse with a couple exceptions. Boats in um, uh, boats in boathouses or cars in garages or whatever in closets is not what I like to um, work with and contribute to posterity. No, no. Mm -hmm. with one exception, mm -hmm. otherwise, Thunderbird Yacht. Right. How often do you say to yourself, or how often does anyone say to themselves at the end of a day, or at the start of a day, I'm truly blessed. For whatever reason, I have blessings. Right. So here I am at Lake Tahoe, in the dating from, I won't tell you how old, but dating back, dating back to the 60s at least. And here's this, I'll call it an icon because it is. Mm -hmm. This tremendous piece of, of history, this tremendously recognizable at this point, and uh, rather uniquely designed commuter yacht. It was the uh, joint uh, efforts of the man that wanted it built and the builder. The builder was John Hacker, or the designer, pardon me, was John Hacker from Michigan. And the facility that built it was a place in Michigan called Bay City, Michigan, Bay City Boatworks mm -hmm. in the 30s. We just started coming out of the Depression, etc. The war efforts were becoming more obvious at the time. And a man by the name of George Wattell, who grew up in San Francisco at the turn of the century, whose father at the time happened to be the president of Pacific Gas and Electric, okay? <laughs> so there was money or otherwise, right? Uh, old San Francisco, but George wouldn't have any part of that, George would tell. And, and he had certainly other interests and other designs. And his father had to find something to do, let him do so he goes off to Reno, Nevada, and he meets up with uh, landowners, and ultimately, simply, he acquires one-third of the shoreline of the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe in the 30s. Oh, wow. To this day, there is nothing otherwise that near and far other than his holdings at the time. So he says, hmm. okay, now I'm going to have this home built, which is a castle-looking property. It's in a lot of my work. It's in public. It's, anyone can find it online. And he goes to Hacker and has Hacker build him a boat that's suitable for the lake, because Lake Tahoe is not a small body of water. Uh, lake Tahoe does not freeze in the winter, so he could use it literally year-round if he wanted to. Plus, Wattel, among other things, was a, a photographer himself, a filmmaker as such, and he was an airplane freak. So he also, mm -hmm. at the time, what was the C-47 or the DC-3. Right. The, the aluminum bulbous um, uh, uh, um, 
aircraft that probably is one of the safest aircrafts flying. Still right. to this So Hacker designs the Thunderbird, which is 55 feet long, and uh, a lot of stainless steel, a lot of aluminum, obviously mahogany, good power, and uh, a boathouse that Wattel decided he was going to carve into the, quote, hillside at the lake that literally would, the literally would, would be similar to a, um, uh, a, uh, a, a, what do you call them, um, a trench or a, a cave? cave? Like a grotto, kind of. Yes, and, and then otherwise invisible to the, to the world because what he was afraid of was they'd come and take the boat for the war effort. Something like that. <laughs> so the boathouse itself is equally unique and visible, but otherwise you don't know what's in there unless they roll the door open. And, right. and it's art in itself, the boathouse. But the Thunderbird um, is a uh, household word in the boating trade, like Coca-Cola or otherwise. Right. Um, it's celebrating its 80th birthday this year. Wow. So, and, and nothing's changed. It's like, I put a post up the other day. It's still humming. It's still, <laughs> it's, it's part of a foundation. Right. So it's supported by um, charitable uh, donations. And uh, to be on board, to be over it, to be in front of it mm -hmm. is amazing. And I, wow. got to do, I got to do that. I got, amazing. No, I got to, no drones. I've gotten to do that to this day. And to share well, it is important. That's, yeah, I think it's an amazing an amazing uh, uh, set of photographs, and it's a it's an amazing um, uh, heritage, especially uh, an amazing American heritage. Um, there isn't there's I'm not I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's there are American boat builders today, but um, the world is being led pretty much in boat building maybe by the Australians and the Europeans. In terms of power boats, um, I think you, it's the Italians are the dominant market um, uh, presence there. Um, and in fact, Riva is now, is now owned by Ferretti. Um, and I remember, I remember back in the 80s with uh, Ferretti, um, when they were just getting a start, and I actually was running three Ferretti's, three different Ferretti uh, boats. One, uh, one was in Finland, uh, one was in Italy, and another was in France. My job was to run back and forth as a captain and take care of all of them. Um, so I'm pretty familiar with, with Ferretti. But that's... This boat, Thunderbird, is really a testament to American building, especially like for the Chris Craft, which used to be, you know, that was the primo class. But they usually uh, are, in, are in dire need of being fixed up, you know, and, and people buy them and they romanticize them. And, they, and then their pocketbook usually has a different uh, point of view. That, I think, is a real testament to American boat building all over and I, I hope to see american boat building really make a resurgence in terms of of class boats spot on scott i i, I can't comment on shall we say like you uh, i was never a boat captain uh 
do I know who Ferretti is? Of course. Uh, Perini Navale, of course. Uh, the American Builders, etc. But but that's not my focus. Pardon the expression. Um, mm -hmm. I will say this: what we started, what a lot of us did back in seventy, uh, is we uh, started the, the concept of a wooden boat public benefit venue each summer where the boats are put on display for viewing and for judging mm -hmm. judging to uh, the judging hopefully was to recognize authenticity and originality by so doing the owners would take their uh, american express cards and go to a gift store and keep the boat in worthy condition right as, as if new so by by hook or by crook or by one one way or another, we've saved these boats as long as we have. But, but then, yes, you go into uh, some of the storehouses where these boats live off season or where they're maintained, and you work your way into the lofts and the nooks and the crannies. Right. And yeah, you'll see the unfortunate soul that hasn't had new varnish lately that hasn't had its engine restored lately yes right well, those are those are fun yeah those, those are expensive and and if anything we're just like in the car world the the cars that go to pebble beach they they weren't exactly showpieces at some point in time and so you have the mr x or mrs y come along and and uh, acquire them and then put their love back into uh, these for for posterity. Well, it's I think it's a it's really quite an amazing um, it's amazing thing that you've been a part of uh, with the uh, wooden boats and and documenting them and uh, their history as well as uh, you know hopefully we get the America's Cup off the um, going. Um, I'd love to talk more about that, but I, we've sort of run out of a little bit of time here. And um, I wanted to thank you for participating. It's been a pleasure. Well, we, we don't need to tell the world, but, but there's nothing keeping us from saying, you found me on Facebook and I found you on Facebook. Thank you. And so I must say, and I would have said it from the beginning of the show, but but you upstaged me, whatever, and I, <laughs> I have, have no problem with that. But I want to thank you for reaching out, and I want to thank you and the audience for giving me this uh, opportunity to share. Well, you're, you're very welcome, and I'm sure that the audience is going to uh, react extremely well to this uh, interview and podcast. I thank you very, very much. You're most welcome. Let's do it again. That was a great interview, Scott. If people want to see Steve's photographs, where can they find him? So Steve Lapkin's photography home is uh, www h2omark.com you'll be able to find him his official website which I would highly recommend going by is Steve Lapkin 
uh, just Google it and you'll get it. But it's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N dash Lapkin, L-A-P-K-I-N dot Pixels, P-I-X-E-L-S dot com. I mean, he's also on Facebook. So you can find him on Facebook. And he does some beautiful work uh, on uh, turningart.com. It's www.turningart.com. You can find all these links at the, the bottom of the podcast. And um, I urge you to go and uh, see Steve's work. And I urge you to, to, to buy it. I have uh, an order in. And uh, there's a couple of photographs that I just absolutely adore that I want on the walls of my house. And I think if you're a real sailor, that's something you'd want to have. Yeah, he's definitely got some beautiful pictures, especially the, the Thunderbird. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful boat. Um, and, and I'll be sure to put I'll be sure to put all those links down in the show notes so you can click directly to find them. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, next week we're going to do a straight up story. I'm going to uh, tell you a true story that has enough bizarreness, um, sex, guns, the military, the Coast Guard, the Navy, and just being a plain old pirate can get you. And the title of it is God Asked Me to Be a Drug Runner. True story. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.